Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We are going to be continuing in our sermon series entitled Resilience. Uh, We've been in this series for uh, a number of weeks at this point. And uh, we're going to be continuing um, really to see where resilience is designed and developed for us to uh, begin to move into. As we started this series, we started talking about what it would look like to have resilience in our spirituality, our resilience in our understanding of our identity. Uh, We've talked about resilient faith. We've talked about resilient uh, prayer being something that's rooted in uh, a trust in God's sovereignty and that ultimately He is in control, and we're going to continue to look at how to develop resilience into our lives. And in the very first week, we made a distinction between a few things, and I want to make sure that we reiterate that and revisit it, but there's a difference between endurance, perseverance, and resilience. And endurance and perseverance is oftentimes the place that we focus on kind of growing and developing and maturing as followers of Jesus, because those are things that uh, suit us when we are in the middle of difficulty. So when you're going through a challenge, when you're enduring difficulty, where you're going through, as the psalmist would describe, the valley of the shadow of death, as you're going through those times of uncertainty or dealing with difficulty in your life, endurance and perseverance are certainly things that we would want to lean into. And endurance is our ability to kind of withstand those types of pressures, and perseverance is the ability to move forward in spite of those pressures. And both of those things, endurance and perseverance, they're developed by those pressure situations. They're developed by going through those trials and those difficulties. Uh, And even as we've looked at some of our uh, anchor verses for the series, James would remind us that we should celebrate going through difficulties because ultimately it brings about the development of perseverance in our lives. But what we're really looking for is not how to get through difficulty, but how to come out on the other side and still be whole and to have our whole person and whole self. And that's what resilience is. Resilience as a term is a descriptor of being able to quickly, to be able to quickly recover from difficulty. Resilience has to do with this idea of elasticity, of being able to spring back into proper shape once you've gone through that. And while endurance and perseverance are developed by going through difficulty, resilience is developed in the after. Resilience is developed in the after. Because in order to regain your shape, in order to recover quickly, The difficulty, the challenge, that season has been navigated and it's on the other side of it. After you've endured and persevered, that now resilience has a chance to be developed in you and I. That that step of maturity is found not in the middle of the struggle, but it's in the after, which means that resilience is something that comes from rest. Resilience is something that comes from rest. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning is how God has designed rest to be a regular part of the way that you live your life, both in the practical and in the spiritual, and that it is designed in order for you to engage in the presence of God and develop that ability to be 
resilient. That when you come through something difficult, right, you've endured, you've persevered, you've grounded out, and you've made it through the other side, that on the other side you're not just the walking wounded. That on the other side you're not just kind of a, a, a shell of your former self. That you're not left diminished or broken or incapacitated, but on the other side, not only do you regain your full person, but you also grow and mature. That God has that type of design for you and I. And that is precisely the reason why for many of us resilience within our spiritual lives is so challenging to see developed in us. It's because it comes from a place of rest and many of us struggle when it comes to rest. We struggle to have that space. We struggle to have that type of rhythm to, to remain still, uh, to cease from striving you know, if you are the parent of a small child, then you know just getting them to like, just hold still, right? We did family photos a while back, and to try to get family photos where something wasn't blurry because it was moving or in motion, right? It was, there was a challenge to that, but many of us are so restless in our person that as our Heavenly Father would say, hey, just sit still and let me work in your life, we're still too hurried, busied, we're in movement or flux, we're trying to respond to the difficulties in our life. We at uh, often struggle, we just, we struggle to rest. And sometimes that's because we live bur very busy lives, very hurried lives. But I would suggest to you that if you cleared your whole schedule and you just said, okay, I've got a whole day and I'm just going to sit and enjoy the presence of God, that you might have cleared the activity off your schedule, but you would probably still have a hurried heart, mind, and soul. That there would still be this, this this fervor of activity, this franticness to the pace at which you think and anticipate and try to uh, work or make sense of, we have a tendency to have a, a challenge in our lives when it comes to kind of resting. And even if, again, we clear our schedule of activity, we're not at peace. But the, the good news for you and I is that God has designed life to be lived in a way that includes rest as a regular part of the rhythm of the life that we live, and that resilience is intended to be developed in us as a result of that. Which means that for you and I, if I would plan and partner, if I would partner with the plans and purposes of God in my life, if I would step into rhythm the way that Paul would say to live rhythmically is to be led, uh, to keep step with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, that if I would engage in going about my life in uh, th that, that way, Rest would be a regular occurrence in my life, and it would be something where I would enjoy the presence of God as a result, and I would develop resilience in my person as well. And so we're going to look at God's design for that and how to move into those types of seasons. If you've got your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and get that out and raise it up high. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, I want to encourage you to open up your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app, by the time we get done preparing our hearts to receive from God's Word, you could download the Bible app and be ready to go. So Lord, we turn our attention towards your word and towards you. Lord, I ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds even in these next moments, that we would move into engaging with your presence. Lord, that there would be a sense of rest in us. Lord, that the things that have been hurrying our life, both on the outside and on the inside, that they would be set aside, and that in these next moments, we would give you room to move in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our lives. Lord, that we would enjoy your presence and even begin to take steps towards resilience today in Jesus' name. Amen.
If your Bible's out, I want to encourage you to just go to the front side of the book. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, because what I want to help build out for you is God's design for rest. That in the way that creation was walked through, that in the, the creative order that, that God has woven natural rhythms of rest into just the way that creation works. And it's going to be something that comes uh, from his, his own person as well, but we're going to kind of bridge to some of these processes just so that we can get a practical grasp on where we're starting this morning. But in Genesis chapter 1, you get a macro narrative of creation. That means like a 30,000 foot view, a big picture view, timeline narrative of how God created creation. And so in Genesis chapter 1, you get that, and then you move to Genesis chapter 2, and it begins to narrow in, and you get kind of a micro view. You get a close-up view. So Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are both creative creation narratives, just from different focus points, uh, giving us perspective for who God is, how he works in creation, and his design to be at work in our lives as well. But we're going to stay with the macro view this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 begins, and any of you guys who grew up in Sunday school already know that it's in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, dot, 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 and then it begins to move on from there. But the macro narrative begins with this move of God, this creative work of God, that he creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth is without form, and uh, the darkness hovers over the waters of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovers in that place. And then you begin to have the, the creative order come into place, and then God said, and then be, things begin to happen. And in that, you go through this process of creation, and the way that Genesis 1 is laid out is it goes through six days of creation. And you have everything from God saying, let there be light, uh, to the firmament, to the ground, to the separation of oceans, to plants, to animals, to mankind. You have all of these things taking place in there. And then on day six, after mankind has been created, verse 31 says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And I draw your attention to that because uh, uh, Genesis goes out of its way to give us this sequence of order and to wrap it up into these six days and this designation of evening and morning. And now all of a sudden, creation is complete. And you move to begin Genesis chapter 2, and so it moves into more of a, a, a close-up view narrative of creation, but it gives kind of a statement of uh, completion over chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it continues and it moves into these words. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day... God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because in it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So you have this macro narrative of creation, this six-day sequence that everything was created within. And now on this seventh day, the, uh, the narrator moves to a descriptor of what God did on that day. And it says that he ceased from his work and that he then rested. That he rested. 
And this idea of rest, we see this in God's activity here, and I'm going to build those ideas out for you a little bit later. But that idea of rest is woven into just the way that creation works. And, and we would know this kind of naturally, right? Uh, you eat, but you don't constantly eat, right? You have to eat, and then you have to rest. You have to stop. You have to metabolize. You have to uh, disperse the energy. You have to then use that, and then you get hungry again, and then you what? eat, right? There's, there's a rhythm to it, but you don't constantly eat while my kids do right now. They just kind of snack through the house, right? It's like, just wait till dinner. And it's like, I'm not hungry when dinner, anybody living that life right now, that's the Hackbarth home, right? But in a normative, healthy eating rhythm, you eat and then you don't eat and then you eat and then you don't, there's a rest rhythm to it. Okay. Same thing with sleep, right? You sleep and then you wake and then you are active and then you sleep unless you're a teenager and then you just sleep for like four years or six years or whatever it is like we're moving into those types of things in the Hackbarth house as well but a a natural healthy rhythm has kind of rest and then waking rest and waking in fact there is technology now that could speak to you about what your best timeline of, of sleep is for some people it's as little as six hours for some people, they need eight or nine. For their optimum sleep, you can get a Fitbit, and it'll tell you in the morning whether or not you slept well or not, regardless of how good you feel, right? It'll just say, your sleep score was really lousy. And you're like, but I feel great. And then the next day, you feel lousy, and it's like, you had a good night's sleep. And you're like, Fitbit, you don't know what's going on, right? But they've got technology that'll even speak to that because there are things that they can measure biologically that say, hey, this is the optimum healthy rhythm for it's built into the way that the world works. In our agricultural uh, agricultural context here, we understand the rhythm of of rest. We understand the different rhythms of seasons where you would plant and then grow and then harvest and then oftentimes depending on the the type uh, uh, of thing that you're planting, there's a dormant season to that. Uh, anybody who does winter wheat out in this area, like you you plant it, it grows a little bit, oh, then it takes a nap. And then it's going to come up later when it gets warm again. Like it, it hibernates like a bear in a sense. But there's these natural kind of rhythms to those things. We see that in seasons. In the way that the world works, we naturally see rhythms that include rest. That when those are in place, there's health and there's growth and there's fruit that are a result of that. So we see that in creation. But then we also see that in the activity of God in Genesis chapter 2 where on the seventh day it says that he ceased from his work and then he rested. Have you ever thought, why did he do that? Right? You know intuitively that it's not because he's tired, because if it was, then he wouldn't be God. It couldn't be that he expended all of his energy and it's just like, bro, I need a day off now. Like, what, what is that? I've heard oftentimes people try to explain it this way, that he rested as an example to you and I, that he was showing us that we needed rest. And there may be something to that. But I don't know if you've ever connected these dots. It was on the sixth day that God created man. Okay, so on that day, it was actually he created the animals and then he created man as a culmination at the end of that. And then it was on the seventh day that God did what? He rested. Which means that on the first morning of man's existence, as he was created and then he goes to sleep, 
evening and morning came, the sixth day, and now the seventh day begins. Did you know that man did not go to work on that day? He rested with God. It's a really interesting thing because when you read Genesis 1 and chapter 2, God gives them a whole bunch of things to be doing, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, steward. He takes them in Genesis chapter 2, places them in the garden, and they are to tend it and to cultivate it. There's assignment, there's responsibility, there's stewardship, there's a to-do list. There's all of those things that are a part of man's design and existence. But on his first day, his first full day of life, he didn't go to work. He rested in the presence of God. See, God rested on the seventh day, not as an example. It was a father-son day. It was a daddy-daughter day. Before any other activity, before any other work, before any of the other things that drive us to like do and show ourselves to be approved, God didn't have man do any of that. He said, just hang out with me. And you and I, we live in a world that doesn't work that way. It's, it's upside down. In fact, everything in the systems of the world that you and I operate in tells us we have to work to earn our rest. And even the old classic rock song, right? Working for the weekend. Like that, that drives all of the ways that we think and move through experience in life. But the way that God designed it was not that you had to work to earn your rest, but that you worked from rest. That you start with an invitation to enjoy his presence and his person, and then you go out to act and to do, to participate in the plans and purposes of God at work in the world. You go from that place to get there. And this, this day of rest was not an assignment. This day of rest was a gift. It was an invitation to know God and to be known by him. And then from that understanding of identity to go out and to do and to purpose in the world around us. And it was so important that it wasn't just, um, it, 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 it wasn't just something that he uh, gave us, but it was something that he intended for you and I to maintain. So when you begin to go through the rest of Genesis and move into Exodus, you have a number of times where God begins to speak about this rhythm of rest. And just as an interesting note, did you know that in the Genesis passage where it says that God, uh, on the seventh day, he rested, that the root word for that word rested is the same word for Sabbath. That kind of changes your thoughts about Sabbath. I don't know if you've heard that word before. It's, it's more of a, a, a churchy word. It's more of a formalized religious type of a word. And a lot of times it comes with a leverage type of condemnation that says that you're not doing the things that you're supposed to do. It carried that connotation in Jesus's time. And unfortunately at times it carries that even today. But if you substituted this idea that you and I are supposed to enjoy Sabbath with the idea that we're supposed to have a rest day with dad, it kind of changes things a little bit, doesn't it? And in Exodus chapter 20, you have a list of the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, by keeping it separated out, by guarding it, by making it a priority. And unfortunately, so often this gets religiously sabotaged into a you can do or you can't do certain things at certain times in certain ways, rather than being understood as you were supposed to prioritize saying yes to God's invitation to enjoy his presence regularly. 
But it was so important that it wasn't just an invitation to come away and rest. It was something that was intended to be maintained. And so as God speaks into the rhythm of the way that his people were supposed to worship, Sabbath was supposed to be something that was prioritized. And it was saying yes to the invitation to come away and to just experience rest in the presence of God. And unfortunately, we sabotage God's gifts. We sabotage his promises. We sabotage many of the things that are meant to give us life by turning them into things that are religious rather than relational. And that's what happens with Sabbath. We live in a world that tells us that we shouldn't rest, that we have to work in order to earn it. And so we're living in a backwards type of value system when it comes to this type of an idea. And then even when we see it exercised oftentimes within the church or within churchy systems, instead of it being a primarily relational invitation to enjoy God's goodness, it comes with a religious requirement that sucks the life out of it and creates a bondage. And so we're challenged at times to rest because the world tells us that we shouldn't and religion sucks the life out of something that is supposed to bring us into a closer relationship with the Lord. And in Mark chapter 2, this is precisely Jesus' problem. And in fact, there was a number of times where Jesus had kind of showdowns with individuals about this idea of Sabbath, about this idea of rest because what had been built into the worship system was not a freedom to engage with the presence of God, but a requirement to maintain religious rigor. And at every time that that was something that Jesus bumped up against, he pushed back on it because it was not what God designed, it was not what God intended, and it was not something that gave life. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is very simply walking through a field with his disciples. He's walking through a field of grain with his disciples, and, and the grain is ripe, and it is getting close to the times of harvest, and the disciples pick a few of the grain heads off of the stock. And so you could think of this in our, in our context of maybe walking through a wheat field right before it's time to harvest. And you're just kind of taking off some of those heads. And I don't know, maybe you're looking for those. Maybe you're checking those. Uh, maybe it's just out of nervous fidgety. I don't know what they were doing or why they were doing it. But they were walking through the field and they did that. And somebody saw them and it happened on the Sabbath. And so there was an accusation levied. You're working which I don't know, like if you've ever harvested a field, if I sent you out there and you picked a couple pieces off the top, like you're not doing real work, right? You're not helping me out. But there was this accusation that was levied, and Jesus met that accusation with correction. And one of the things that he stewards at the end of the conversation is he makes a statement that's supposed to recalibrate their understanding of what it means to Sabbath, what it means to rest, and what it's intended for. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, as Jesus kind of finishes his pushback on this, he reminds them and he makes this statement, the Sabbath was made for man. It, it, it was a gift it was intended to be received. Man was not made for the Sabbath. He said, you, you've got this backwards. You've got this mixed up. You've taken this and you've made it religious rigor and you've sucked the life out of it. But it was intended to be a gift. It was intended to be received. Sabbath, rest, was made for you and I. Because we have limits, but our God does not. We have limits, but our God does not. And I know that some of you young people, 25 and younger, like you feel like you have no limits. You're still invincible, but time's going to catch up to you. 
Every time a young person kind of comments on how old I'm getting in whatever form or fashion, I just smile and say, keep living. Just keep living. Like, I don't even, ha- I don't even, have, to, I don't even have to come back. Like, just keep living. And one of these days, I'll just be like, same. <laughs> we have limits, but our God does not. And the restlessness in our life, the rest that we need, both in just the natural, sleep, eating rhythms, the things that we see just in nature as natural, rhythmic growth and maturing and fruitfulness, dormancy, the idea of seasons, all of those things. Those natural pictures of a restlessness that we continue to bump into in our person. Our need for rest and the restlessness that we experience is designed to draw us to say yes to God's invitation to experience His presence. When you're lying awake at night and your mind is racked with worry and your body is trying to rest, but your mind will not, it is an invitation not to anxiety, but to set those things aside and to invite the presence of God. The hurriedness in your schedule, the constriction in your finances, these places where it's like you're grinding it out, trying to make things happen, where you're trying to endure and to persevere, but what you need is a season of rest so that you can become more resilient and you can regain your full person in Him. Those things are all invitations to pause and to rest because you need to rest, but God does not. One of the beautiful promises in the Old Testament is where God speaks through the prophet and says, Hear, O Israel, your God does not sleep, nor does he slumber. I don't, I don't have to do that. You can rest and know that I'm on watch. You can rest and know that I provide. You can rest and know that I'm at work in your life. You can rest and know that I do for you in that space. And our need, our need for rest is supposed to draw us to the Lord. There was a... Um, There was a writer in the 1600s. His name was George Herbert. He was a Church of England priest and clergyman. He was a poet. Uh, He was somebody who was regarded as a devotional lyricist, which means that he would write the lyrics to hymns that were sung for specific types of uh, uh, specific types of ceremony. And he wrote a complete work that was called The Temple. And there's a number of poems that are in it that are all uh, leaning into this idea of uh, understanding the, the person and the work of God in our lives. But he touches on this one poem called The Pulley, and in it he regards our need for rest and addresses the restlessness that we have in our lives. And so George Herbert writes, he says, When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can, Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, 
He would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. And as George would write about this idea of restlessness and the fact that we can't find rest in ourselves, that we don't get to hold that for our own, that the only place that we can find rest, the only place that our restlessness can be assuaged is in the presence of God. He notes this idea that the design that God has for that is to draw us to him. That the design that God has for our need for rest is to draw us to him. Because we have limits, but he is limitless. And there's a few lies that we begin to believe that push us in the other direction. And I want to share three with you, and it's not an exhaustive list. It's certainly uh, not the, the only lies that we have a tendency to be fooled by or to buy into. But these are three that I've found become places where I am more prone to try to grind it out myself than to rest in the presence of God. And the first lie is this, that I will never have enough. That I will never have enough. So much of our activity, so much of our busyness, so much of our, uh, our um, desire and even our willingness to endure and to persevere and to grind it out in our own strength is with this idea that we have to provide for ourselves, and even as much as we have received, there's not, there's not going to be enough. And in that, it becomes an issue of trust and faith and provision that somehow we have to provide for our own need and provide for our own self. And there is a litany of scripture that would suggest to us the foolishness of that. But it is something that's easy for us to buy into. I'm just, I'm not going to have enough. I've got to pick up this next shift. I've got to get this other part-time job. I've got to put this other thing that would be healthy for my person and my soul and even my mental health. I've got to put that on hold because I have to somehow make this happen for me because I'm not going to have enough. You can hear the hurriedness that comes with that. Another lie that we buy into is that it's all up to me. I can't count on others. I can't count on my spouse. I can't count on my friends. I can't count on the others. It's going to be something that is all up to me, and it becomes an issue of control, that I have to somehow have my hands on all the levers and make everything work out. And sometimes it's even out of a perceived responsibility of wanting to care for others. But it presumes that somehow we in our own person can do all of that, not only for ourselves, but for everybody else as well. And so as long as we're in control, we can make that happen. And whenever we fall into that place, we begin to be hurried and busied at a greater and greater pace and rest is ever elusive and even if we do have time to sit our minds and our hearts and our souls do not rest at peace the other lie that we'll buy, buy into has to do with our issue of self-worth and it's that i will never be enough sometimes we're we're driven by this idea that i will never have enough but we're often driven by issues of broken identity and self-worth that says i will never be enough and so i need to accomplish one more thing i need to uh, show myself to be approved here i need to develop this type of capacity or demonstrate this type of expertise that i've got to keep going and going and going and going and going otherwise i will find that i am wanting in my 
person, and it has to do with our view and our self-worth, and all of those things, and the others that we would fall into as well, all are rooted in fear and worry and anxiety, or in unhealthy desires and idolatry. They're always driving us, driving us, driving us away from the invitation to just rest in the presence of God. And in Psalm 46, the psalmist begins in verse 1, making a very bold declaration. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he begins to describe the world falling apart. As you move through the rest of the psalm, there are all of these kind of these wars and difficulties and circumstances that are coming to the forefront of experience. But there is a certainty that refuge in God can be found and held on to. And then as the psalm moves towards a resolution in verse 10, there is a statement that is made by God for his people in the midst of this type of experience. And it says that he says, speaking of God, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Choose to stop. Cease from striving. Rest. Sit still. And then know that I am God. And that word for know, we've talked about this before, is not primarily cognitive. It's not just, okay, I agree with that and that's true. The word holds with it a knowledge that is known through experience. That God is saying, take refuge in me regardless of all of the other stuff. Stop, pause, rest, sit still, and know, experience that I am the God, the God of provision, the God who speaks and secures your identity, the God who is sovereign and in control. I am God. You are limited, but I am limitless. Come and enjoy rest with me. You can work from that place tomorrow. There's an invitation there's an invitation to be still. And rest is always, rest, true rest, it's always deliberate and it's always purposeful. True rest is always deliberate and it's always purposeful. And that's the invitation that God gives to us. And for some of us, this needs to be something that's incorporated into our day to day. For some of this, this is something that needs to be incorporated into our weekly rhythm. For some of us, this needs to just be a regular established rhythm of resting and enjoying the presence of God. But it is the invitation, and you were designed for it. And resilience is found in that place. Worship team, if you would come forward, church family, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to consider a couple ways for us to respond this morning to the Lord's invitation. And it's going to begin with just our own consideration, considerations. And so as the Spirit of God would lead you in these next few moments, I would encourage you to be led by Him. What, what would your life look like if you were able to establish a Sabbath rhythm? Understanding Sabbath as a rhythm of rest, an invitation to experience the presence of God, not, not a religious 
rigid to-do list, not a set of things to be somehow in compliance, but if there was a regularity to your life where there was uh, a rhythm of experiencing the presence of God, if you rested in the presence of God with purposed and intentional regularity, what, what would your life begin to look like? How would your faith grow? How could you better begin to discern the voice of God when he would speak and he would lead? How would you become more resilient in your faith and in your prayer and in the way that you follow Jesus? We're gonna take the first step this morning. We're gonna take it together. We're in these next few moments, we're gonna pause. Lord, we quiet our hearts and our minds before you and in these next few moments, in these next few moments, Lord, we say yes to your invitation. Lord, I pray for hearts and minds and souls that are hurried, that are frantic, that are weary, that are anxious, that are fearful. Lord, I pray that you would silence those things and that you would bring peace right now by your spirit. Lord, the places in our lives, the places in our lives where we are following unhealthy desires, where our priorities are out of alignment with the design that you have for our life. Lord, where we've elevated things or experiences above our relationship with you, Lord, would you bring that gentle correction here? And not with a condemning voice and a heavy hand, Lord, but with a very simple invitation to rest. Lord, that we wouldn't buy into a system of the world that says that we have to earn our rest, but that we get to rest in you and then to live life from that place. Lord, that resting in your presence would give us our identity and then we would go from there to partner with you in the world. Lord, that resting in you would assure us that you are our provider and that you are in control and that we could go and move in this world in confidence of knowing that that is true. Lord, give us rest for our hearts and our minds and our souls today. And Holy Spirit, show us how in the coming weeks, in the coming days, that we could establish a rhythm of just saying yes to your invitation. Yes to your invitation to our Father Sunday. Yes to our invitation to our Daddy-Daughter Day. To say yes to our Heavenly Father. Experience the richness of communion in your presence. The healing and the wholeness, the restoration and the resilience, the recovering of our true self in that place and that we would go from there to partner with you in the plans and purposes that you have for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some action steps for you this week. I've got three. You can snap a picture of these or catch them online later on. Number one, I want to encourage you to read Psalm 46 this week. Just find some time to make your way through that psalm. Number two, consider how to begin a daily or weekly rhythm of rest. And then as you do that, begin to experience his presence through regularly resting in him.